Hebrews, verse by verse. This is part 19. Our obedient high priest and his obedient followers. It's an interesting text. Hebrews 5, we're looking at 10 verses. And here's what you're going to see happening in these verses, just so we we all appreciate the direction of the text before we start into it. What this text is going to do is it's going to talk in general terms about priests all through the Old Testament. All high priests, all priests. It's going to talk about them in general terms. And then in the last part, roughly, verse 5 on, it's going to make comparisons between priests in general all through the Old Covenant and Jesus Christ as our faithful, merciful, sympathetic high priest. And it will, it will mark out some similarities between all those priests and Christ's priestly ministry. And then it will mark out some striking contrasts between all those priests and Christ's priestly ministry. Everybody with me? All right. That wasn't enthusiastic, but I'll, I'll settle for it. Hebrews 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2 is a really important verse. He, that's all those priests, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with Weakness. Because of this, verse 3, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Now, 2 and 3 are going to form the core problem that our writer wants to solve. Okay? On the plus side, all of these human priests, they're able to relate to those he calls the ignorant and the wayward. That's us, sinners. So on the plus side, having priests just like us, they can understand what we're like. But there's a problem. The problem comes in that third verse. They have to also offer sacrifices for their own sins. So here's the dilemma. While they can offer us sympathy, empathy understanding what they can't offer us is any kind of righteousness. Okay? That's the problem. Now he's going to continue. Verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself. People didn't just get up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to be a priest. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now you'll see the switch. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you're thinking, what in the world? We'll talk about that. Seven. In the days of his flesh, that's Jesus, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. But he died. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. And then these strange verses, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order, and here it is again, the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. These are words written by men, chosen by the Holy Spirit for our instruction, so we know they're important before we even study them. And we invite you to come, Lord Jesus, open our hearts and minds that truth can germinate in our lives, multiply in terms of its effect. In your name I pray. Amen. You can see how the chapter divisions occasionally break up a single flow of thought. I mean the divisions like chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. The last three verses of chapter 4 sort of pull our thinking around the ministry of Jesus as our perfect and sympathetic high priest. We looked at them last week. And the word for, in the first verse of chapter 5, it, it signals that we're still dealing with the subject of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. If there is a slight shift, it would be our writer will now deal with all high priests in verses 1 to 4 and then move on to make comparisons and contrasts with Christ, our eternal high priest, in verses 5 to 10. So that's where we're going this morning. Point number one. For effective priestly ministry, there must be solidarity with the people the priest represents. That's in 5.1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed, and here's the phrase, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So, so the priest... See, he's chosen from among men to act on behalf of men in relation to God. An angel would be a terrible high priest. He's chosen from among men. An angel would have no understanding of, of the human condition. Uh, an angel couldn't uh, fully empathize and understand. An angel couldn't help us get to God and getting to God is what the priesthood is all about in relation to God. You see, all through the Old Testament, um, the priestly mission moves in the opposite direction of the prophetic mission. If you're reading your Bible right through, you're right in the middle of Elijah and Elisha, and you see the work of prophets. You come to the latter part of the Old Testament, the minor prophets, the major prophets, where God speaks. You have that, thus saith the Lord. We don't have prophets like that anymore. The priestly mission moves in the opposite direction of the prophetic mission, if I can put it that way. Prophets move from God to man. They reveal. They proclaim. The movement is from up 
to down. God speaks, the people listen, God speaks through the prophets. Priests minister from man toward God. Priests lead in repentance. They help with sacrifice. They help with worship. The movement is from down to up. Something something must be accomplished in the ministry of the priest to, to open up a way to a holy God. We, we can't get there. And by the way, we still can't get there. Not on our own. This is what our writer means by those very precious words in that first verse of chapter 5. Look at them. Appointed to act on behalf of man and in relation to God. Men and women like us, we can't get to God. God would be nothing but an unbearable threat. A holy God would be nothing but an unbearable threat to the likes of us. That's why it's so striking, isn't it? God gives the law. This is, this is, this is how... If all we have is moral instruction from God, we are in desperate shape. Do you remember when God gives the Ten, Ten Commandments? God gives the Ten Commandments and he says to Moses, this isn't God being mean. This is God just being God, a holy God. And he says, please, keep the people, keep the animals, build a barricade. Don't let them touch the mountain when I'm giving the law. What happens if they touch it? They die. This isn't God killing them. This is, this is a vivid picture of how unapproachable the holiness of God is by sinful people. We're desperately in need of priests. So God sets this up throughout the Old Testament. The solution to our dilemma is it's some kind of sin remedy. So all through the Old Testament, there has to be, there has to be some, some form of payment for sin. God doesn't just accept sinners. Some sort of substitution. And so our writer wraps up verse 1 with this divine plan. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. The, the, the bulk of them, they can't, act, they can't act on their own. Someone has to act for them in relation to God. And then it says, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So there's something in this New Testament writer, the writer of Hebrews, that he, he feels we need the repeated Old Testament lesson. He's writing to Jews. They know this stuff. And yet he goes over it. All priests are useless in their help to the people apart from the offering of sacrifices. Priests offering mere sympathy are no good. Priests coming and saying, here's God's requirements. This is, if you want to be a good person. This, by the way, is, is religion. Got Ten Commandments. Here's, oh, here's some more stuff here. You should do this. Um, you should do this over here. Yeah, you got to do that. Red letter, that's Jesus. Try and do that. Um, this isn't too important. But this is really important. You do this. 
If, if all the priest does is says, now here's how you do it, is that any, does that help me at all? No. What does the priest do? He has to offer sacrifices. He has to pay for sin. Notice carefully that emphatic nature of verse 1. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Every high priest. There were never any exceptions to this rule all through the Old Testament. God was up to something in those dark, bloody Old Testament years. He was getting our minds ready for something. There was going to be a sacrifice. Point number two. For effective priestly ministry, there must be compassion for the weaknesses of the people. This comes across really clearly, of course, in that second verse. He can deal... This is nice, isn't it? This is what I need. Gently. With the ignorant and the wayward. Since he himself is beset with weakness... There are some um, tricky, uh, hard passages of Scripture that we ought to think through, study, and appreciate a bit more than we do. There are scattered texts where we have pictures painted. How can I put it? Pictures painted of the only way people like us, verse 2 says, were the ignorant and the wayward. So there are pictures painted of the only way people like us can think of God apart from the sympathetic high priesthood of our Redeemer. Take away the high priest, and here's the only way we can think about our relationship with God. It's not good. This is the parable of the talents. You know the story. Depending on which account, you got five, three, one, uh, and, and... and some of them trade, and they make more, and there's improvement, and one, he's very afraid. Remember the story? Hides it in the ground. Here, I I didn't lose it. That's where we're picking it up in this story. These are Jesus' words. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, Reaping where you did not sow. Gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here. You have what is yours. Never skip over verses like that. They are divinely intended passages. They're crafted to to sort of drive us deeper into thinking about our need for a merciful, sympathetic high priest. And here's the main point that I want to make. This servant, this servant is not inaccurate in his assessment of the master. Read the text for yourself. You don't have to take my... My word for it, nothing in these verses says that he was mistaken when he says, you're hard. You're you, you reap where you didn't sow. You, you have high expectations. You want profit. 
In fact, his master confirms this servant's evaluation of the assignment. It's in verse 26. His master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. The master doesn't say to the servant, no, 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 I'm not like that. Does he? He says, you, you knew I'm exactly like that. This man's fear is well-grounded. Here is a man who is crippled by the awareness of his master's expectations exceeding his results. There's, there's more terror here than love. And we're meant, we're meant to look straight into the law of God and the fearful effects that it has without a merciful, forgiving, gracious high priest. Look at this fear-bound servant. His words are marked just by sheer task awareness. And, and we're forced to stare at religious duty, any religious duty in any religion. We're forced to stare at religious duty divorced from confidence in mercy and forgiveness and sympathy. We are not able to live with God with confidence in our own abilities. I'm not. And now you pick up your Bible. And you start to see dark shadows gradually unfolding over the centuries of God's solution to this problem. God fills up the whole Old Testament with priests. Piles of them. And they are people priests. They're not angel priests. They are deliberately non-threatening priests. They are priests like us. They are priests who kind of arise out of the ashes of all of our own imperfections. This is the only hope we have. Sinners need the ministry of priests who can. Verse 2, Hebrews 5. We need someone who can deal gently the ignorant and the wayward. Or we're dead in the water. Now, as we saw last week, not all priests lived up to this calling. Scriptures are filled with priests who were anything but gentle with the ignorant and the wayward. Priests that were greedy. Priests that were immoral. Priests that were self-centered. And our writer is now going to tell us what the problem was for all those old covenant years. It's in Hebrews 5, 3, and 4. Stay with me. Because of this, he, that's all the high priests, the human high priest, he is, able to, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So, so, here we begin to unravel, like I said in the introduction, we start to unravel the dilemma. And here it is. The same humanity that should have made all those Old Testament priests gentle with the ignorant and the wayward also made them greedy and cruel and immoral and indifferent. 
in their divine assignment. It's that catch-22. We need the sympathy, but we need their holiness. Had God made a mistake? Look at the centuries roll by. Was, was the whole mission like a grand failure of some kind? And the answer is, of course, no. God was unpacking an unforgettable, constantly repeated reminder. Remember that word, reminder. The people knew they kept sinning every year because the sacrifices, they had to keep bringing them. And the people saw their high priest offering the same sacrifice for them and for themselves because they were just as much sinners as the people they represented. That word, reminder, I said to remember it. It is the exact word our writer uses to describe what was going on for all those centuries of priesthood and sacrifice. You can see it in Hebrews 10, 3 and 4. But in these sacrifices... See it? There is a, say it with me, reminder. A reminder of sins every year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. This doesn't work. What was God doing? If it doesn't work, what was God doing? God, God was doing what all good teachers do. God was proving to them it didn't work so they would be ready for something that did. You have centuries of reminder of sin. Centuries of showing instruction doesn't change anybody. Centuries of showing the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for any sin. Centuries to prove that the priests themselves weren't free from sin. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as those of the people. The whole thing crumbles... Notice, not a removal of sins, not satisfaction for sins, not a solution for sins. No. You take Jesus out of any religion, any religion, take Jesus out of it and all you get is a reminder that we're ignorant and wayward. That's what our writer says. So you stay with the text. Verse 5 now is going to mark a striking division. The writer moves from this analysis, painful analysis of the old covenant priesthood in general to, to the fulfillment of it in our crucified, ascended high priest, Jesus Christ. Point number three. It is the solution for human sin that drives the whole mission of the Incarnation. Look at verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, and now you get these two Old Testament quotes. We've seen these before, but it's a while ago. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, this is from the Psalms as well, you are a high priest or a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
and you need to stay with what the writer is doing here. Our writer of Hebrews to these Jewish Christians who are being tempted back into a rejection of Christ as the Messiah into Orthodox Judaism. And the writer here is trying to solidify their commitment to Christ. And he knits together two aspects. This isn't complicated. He knits together two aspects of Messiah's mission. One is the root. One is the fruit. The root is the once-for-all incarnation of God the Son in human flesh and nature. The fruit is the ongoing high priestly intercession of Christ on behalf of sinners. Incarnation, priestly ministry. Incarnation, priestly ministry. Root, fruit. And because our writer is writing to these Jewish believers, he goes back to the two quotes from the Psalms that he used earlier. The first quote about his divine sonship, it comes from Psalm 2, verse 7. And the second, about his priesthood, comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. I'm not going to dwell on these, I'm just going to read them. Psalm 2, 7, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Of course, we see this so prophetically fulfilled, don't we? The baptism of Jesus. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. That is when he came to earth in a human body, the, the birth of Jesus. There's a begottenness to the eternal son. And it's when he came into this world. Psalm 110.4, the Lord has shown and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Quotes from the Psalms in the book of Hebrews, they, they don't make for smooth reading. When we're reading our Bibles, we don't like Old Testament quotes in New Testament passages because they kind of jumble and bump the words around. The sentences don't flow as nicely. But we simply must see what our writer is doing here. To understand this, this point, is to understand the heart of evangelical orthodoxy. Churches don't have to be right on everything, but they must be right about this. Think back to the problem presented in that third verse. I'll show you to you again. We read it. Because of this, he, that's the human priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin just as he does for those of the people. So the, the humanity that made sympathy for the ignorant and wandering possible also made faithfulness and success in such a holy calling impossible. So here we are now. What if, let's pretend, what if there was a high priest who was fully sympathetic, knew exactly what it was like to be tempted just like Don Horbin is tempted, okay? Fully sympathetic. But was absolutely pure and faithful in fulfilling 
the very law of God that the rest of us failed to keep. What if, just pretend, we actually had a high priest who could provide sympathy for the ignorant and the wayward and could provide solid righteousness before a holy God in my place? That would be perfect. And the writer is saying, that's what the whole old covenant was laboring progressively to reveal. That is what God was providing in Jesus Christ. The reason the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, that's the Psalm 2-7, you're my son. The reason he did was so he could be a perfect, sympathetic high priest. That's the Psalm 110-4, you are a high priest. And suddenly we begin to see why our writer takes the time to put together these two quotes. You are my son with you are a priest forever. The priesthood is the whole reason for the incarnation. It was all about God providing a high priest who could be both sympathetic and faithfully righteous. I'm going to skip something for those doing the notes. Down to point four. Here's the proof Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, this is while he was on earth, okay? And there's a a real uh, pointing to the divine nature of Christ when they have to contrast his existence with the day of his, his days in the flesh. You don't have to say that about me. Don's days in the flesh. Those are the only days I've got. But when they make that distinction, he's saying something very specific about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. What is this? Loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. We're not specifically told. The verse doesn't tell us the the occasion of those loud cries of Jesus. But I guess the most glaring example we know of would be his prayer in Gethsemane. And And then there was that mysterious cry where Jesus, quoting Psalm 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Question mark. The only time in Scripture where Jesus prays and doesn't call God Father is when he's bearing my sin. The only time he addresses God not as Father, because of that separation, that forsakenness. And he feels the weight of that. The the relationship changed just for that moment. And, And then, those are deeply mysterious words, aren't they? We would have no idea of the weight behind that cry without the prophet Isaiah's explanation 
53.6, it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can I tell you something I hate about myself? I hate it when I see my own mind resting in mere religious slogans without thinking them through. I do it all the time. You probably do too. How how will we give meaning to that sentence? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I would urge you, constantly work hard to attach meaning to frequently repeated phrases and verses and worship songs and hymns. Don't ever let things just rattle off your tongue because we know them so well. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I try to do it more and more when I worship. And I sit right there and you get this awareness that everybody's looking at the back of your head when you're worshiping. You're the pastor after all. You better not be sleeping. And I try over and over again to recognize God never called me merely to trance out when we start singing worship choruses. And I try and think through phrases. What, what does that mean? What does it mean when we're at communion? This is just an example. Did our such love and sorrow meet? You sing it all the time, don't you? Why sorrow? I mean, I get the love part. Is it, is it sorrow because he knows while he's hanging there on the cross that there'll be people sitting in a church service like this and they will absolutely fail to recognize what Jesus did for them on the cross and it will be for nothing? Sorrow. It's just an example. I know not all hymns give it to you and I know not all worship choruses give it to you. We have one now. They play this thing before the service and there's this worship chorus about... I don't know, there's walls falling down and the cows out of the barn. And I, I know there are songs that give you nothing. But most of the time, there's something there. We work pretty hard. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, let's just, everybody stop for a minute. Consider the iniquity of us all laid on Jesus. What am I going to do with that? Think of the effects of the fall on mankind. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had, have you ever had something that you had to look at or pay attention to that just viscerally made you sick? Have you ever had a moment where you had to look at some aspect of human wickedness and suffering and, and, just, and, just, and just, it literally kind of made you turn, it turned your stomach? Anybody had that? Let me see. It just, it's just, ah. Consider the net effect of all iniquity in this world. Let your mind sweep over just some of the big, revolting categories. Think about all the wars 
Think of all the violence. Think of the beatings. Think of beatings in domestic situations. Think of the racism. Think of the slavery. Think of the drug trade. Think of organized crime. Think of all the perversion, all the twisted sexual activity. Think of deceit in high places. Think of all addictions. Think of every curse word ever spoken. Think of every kidnapping. Think of the sex trade, innocent young girls. Think of all the child abuse. Think of all the economic corruption. Think of all the areas of entrenched genocide in this world. Think of all the acts of revenge. Think of all the broken promises. Consider every cruel, pornographic, perverse picture or sentence that has ever been written. Think about it all. And if you've ever had just even two minutes of a churning stomach, and if you've ever missed just one night's sleep or had to quell just a few minutes of inward rage at the way things are, now take all of it, every bit of it, all of it, and place it at the very same moment into the absolutely pure, divine, holy, unstained heart of our Lord. That's what's behind those loud cries. My God! Who could stand that? Who could stand that? Puts new meaning, doesn't it, when you start to sing, Oh, how he loves you and me. And yet we should be thankful for those loud cries. Yeah. Yeah. Those loud cries, painful as they are, are proof positive that there's some kind of atoning work taking place in that body of Jesus. Something's happening. Five. I'm almost done. If Jesus was perfectly obedient to Father God, and my trust is in him, does it matter if I'm obedient or not? He's, I mean, he's kind of righteous in my place. It, it's like having a passing grade before you ever write the exam. Hebrews 5, 10 to 8. Although he was a son, these words are interesting, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And wasn't he perfect before? Being made perfect. Look at this. He became the source of salvation to all who believe... Oh, wait a minute. All who obey him. Have you ever noticed that in your Bible? 
We'll pick up the priestly order of Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. He spends a whole chapter on it. But there's, there's another issue arising out of those verses. One might think, given the marvelous description of the divine nature of our Lord, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, that's where it all started in our study, one would think that the Son would be exempt from the learning that's described in these verses. And yet, here we learn that the incarnate Son, who was without sin, this very letter tells us that, learned obedience through what he suffered. And, and you know, you want to you tread carefully here. He didn't learn obedience by unlearning disobedience. That's how I learn obedience, by the way. And that's how you learn obedience. You make a few mistakes and you go, oh, okay. Although maybe you know someone that just, you know, keeps going with the mistakes. Okay, just keep banging your head against the wall, you know. So he didn't learn obedience the way the rest of us learn obedience. But there's another way in which there's another way in which he learned obedience exactly the same way we disciples must learn obedience. And here it is. In his incarnation, for the very first time, the son learned obedience by resisting opposition to obedience that he had never experienced. Our text affirms the son learned obedience in the face of suffering for the very first time the son's faithfulness to the father was a challenged faithfulness challenged by satan in the wilderness challenged by the surrounding culture that rejected his mission challenged by other religions that eventually crucified him challenged by ridicule they spat on him challenged by false gods and multiple religions it's it's different staying faithful in those situations. The son learned obedience the same way we must all learn obedience. We, we must all process what remaining faithful to God means in constantly changing situations. You never learn to be faithful to the Lord just once because your situations change. The challenges change. The temptations change. We're living in a day when the opposition of the surrounding culture is only going to get worse. And we are going to have to learn faithfulness to Jesus all over again through what we will suffer for following him. Does everybody hear that sentence? It's coming. It's coming. Are you ready for that? You know what's going to happen? A whole bunch of Christians are going to... We're going to learn obedience. We're going to learn it. It's different. It's different staying faithful in those situations. And so we learn from our faithful high priest that we never learn faithfulness to Jesus just 
once. There are no one-time decisions to obey Jesus forever. Obedience must be freshly forged as long as there is fresh opposition, fresh slander, fresh hatred. That's what's behind our writer's nudge toward obedience in this text. This is the last slide. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here's what what I find comforting about my high priest. You are not following a savior who doesn't know the cost of obedience. You are not following a high priest who went through life like Superman, able to leap high buildings. He knows about the price of faithfulness when he calls you to faithfulness. We have a high priest who can forgive, verse 2, the ignorant and the wayward because he knows, he knows the cost of learning obedience when it comes through hostility and opposition and suffering and anguish. But this learned obedience of the Son, it also makes him treasure obedience in his followers. Anything hard won is more deeply treasured. So there's nothing casual or lighthearted in the Son's call for obedience in his disciples. He has been there. He knows the cost and the value of learning obedience in opposing situations. Never turn his priestly sympathy into priestly indifference. Never turn priestly sympathy into priestly indifference. He cares immeasurably about my obedience. Our sinless high priest resisted and abhorred sin all his earthly life. This is the path he himself walked. This is the only path he shares with us. This is his only invitation. I love this quote by F.F. Bruce. If you want it, I'll see if we can post it or something. He says this, quote, There is something appropriate in the fact that the salvation which was procured by the obedience of the Redeemer should be made available to the obedience of the redeemed. Our obedient high priest and his obedient followers. The dilemma has been solved. Earthly priests, they could be sympathetic when they were well-behaved, but they couldn't offer righteousness. Jesus says that the whole old covenant was designed to show that this doesn't work. We have a high priest who's fully sympathetic, tempted in all points, just like we are. He sympathizes with us. And he's righteous. I stand in his righteousness. And what that does is it makes me want to learn obedience exactly the same way he did. 
not to the same degree. That's the direction of my heart.